Section 46 of Canada, The Empire of the North. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Canada, The Empire of the North by Agnes C. Lott from 1820 to 1867 part three affairs had gone faster in quebec there the rebellion almost became war papineau was leader of the agitators papineau fiery impetuous eloquent followed by the bold boys in the bonnets blue marching the streets of montreal singing revolutionary songs and planting liberty trees in Lower Canada, too, things have come to the pass where the agitators advocate armed resistance. From the first, in Quebec, the struggle has waged round two questions, the exclusion of the French from the Council, and the right of the colony to spend its own revenues, but boil down the 92 resolutions of 1834 and the demands of the agitators in Lower Canada are the same as in Upper Canada for complete self-government. A dozen clashes of authority lead up to the final outbreak. For instance, the House elects Papineau, the agitator, Speaker. The Governor-General refuses to recognize him, and Parliament is dissolved. Failing to obtain redress by constitutional methods, the agitators now advocate the right of a colony to abolish government unsuited to it. The Constitutional Party takes alarm and organizes volunteers. Papineau's party, early in 1837, began violently advocating that all French magistrates resign their commissions from the English government. On Richaud River and up in two mountains, north of Montreal, are the strongholds of the agitators where men have been drilling and the boys in the bonnets blue rioting through the villages to the great scandal of parish priests there are riots in montreal early in november of eighteen thirty seven and the sons of liberty are chased through the town then in the third week of november a troop of montreal cavalry is sent to st john's to arrest three agitators who have been threatening a magistrate for refusing to resign his commission the agitators are arrested and handcuffed and at three in the morning the troops are moving along across country towards longueuil with the prisoners in a wagon when suddenly three hundred armed men rise on either side of the road to the fore shots are exchanged in the confusion the prisoners jump from the wagon this is not resistance to authority it is open rebellion papineau entrusts the management of affairs in st eustache north of montreal to girard a swiss and to dr chenier a local patriot papineau himself and dr nelson and o'callaghan are down on the richelieu at st denis take the richelieu region first colonel gore is to strike up the river southward to st denis colonel wetherill is to 
cross country from montreal and strike down the river north to st charles thus hemming in the insurgents between gore on the north and himself on the south there are eight hundred rebels at st denis one hundred and fifty armed and twelve hundred at st charles papineau and o'callaghan for safety's sake slip across the line to swanton in vermont one could wish that having led their faithful followers up to the sticking point of stark madness the agitators had remained shoulder to shoulder with the brave fellows on the field colonel gore came from montreal by boat to the mouth of the richelieu at seven thirty on the night of november twenty second two hundred and fifty troopers landed to march up the richelieu road to st denis rain turning to sleet was falling in a deluge the roads were swimming knee-deep in slush bridges had been cut and in the darkness the loyalists had to diverge to fording places which lengthened out the march twenty-four miles at st denis was dr nelson with the agitators in a three-story stone house windows bristling with muskets by dawn papineau and o'callaghan had fled and at nine o'clock came colonel gore's loyalist troops exhausted from the march soaked to the skin their water-sag clothes freezing in the cold wind the loyalists went into the fight unfed and with a whoop but it is not surprising that the peppering of bullets from the windows drove the troopers back and gore's bugles sounded retreat unaware of gore's defeat one lieutenant weir has been sent across country with dispatches he is captured and bound and in a futile attempt to escape shot and stabbed to death wetherell comes down the river from chamblay with three hundred men he finds st charles village protected by outworks of felled trees and the houses are literally loopholed with muskets but wetherell has brought cannon along and the cannon begin to sing on november twenty fifth then wetherell's men charge through the little village with leveled bayonets the poor habitants scatter like frightened sheep they surrender one hundred perish it is estimated that on both sides three hundred are wounded though some english writers give the list of wounded as low as forty messengers gallop with news of the patriots defeat at st charles to dr nelson at st denis the habitants fled to their homes nelson was left without a follower he escaped to the woods and for two weeks wandered in the forests of the boundary exposed to cold and hunger not daring to kindle a fire that would betray him afraid to let himself sleep for fear of freezing to death he was captured near the vermont line and carried prisoner to montreal and still worse fared the fortunes of war with the patriots north of montreal their defence and defeat were almost pitiable in childish ignorance of what war might mean boys marbles had been gathered together for bullets scythes were carried as swords and old flintlocks that had not seen service for twenty years were taken down from the chimney places with their bonnets blue hanging down their backs 
rusty firearms over their shoulders and the village fiddler leading the march one thousand sons of liberty had paraded the streets of st eustache singing rollicking speechifying unconscious as children playing war that they were dancing to ruin above a volcano chenier the beloved country doctor is their leader girard the swiss has come up to show them how to drill they take possession of a newly built convent then on sunday the third of december comes word of the defeat down on the richelieu the moderate men plead with chenier to stop now before it is too late but chenier will not listen he knows the cause is right and with the credulity or faith of a simple child hopes some mad miracle will win the day still he is much moved tears stream down his face then on december fourteenth the church bells ring a crazy alarm the troops are coming two thousand of them from montreal under sir john colburn the governor the insurgent army melts like frost before the sun less than one hundred men stand by poor chenier at eleven thirty the troops sweep in at both ends of the village at once Girard, the Swiss commander, suicides in panic flight. Cooped up in the church steeple with the flames mounting closer round them and the troopers whooping jubilantly outside, Chenier and his eighty followers call out, We are done, we are sold, let us jump. Chenier jumps from the steeple, is hit by the flying bullets, and perishes as he falls. His men cower back in the flaming steeple till it falls with a crash into the burning ruins. Amid the ash heap are afterwards found the corpses of seventy-two patriots. The troopers take one hundred prisoners in the region, then set fire to all houses where loyalist flags are not waved from the windows. Matters have now come to such an outrageous pass that the British government can no longer ignore the fact that colony has been goaded to desperation by the misgovernment of the ruling clique. Lord Durham is appointed special commissioner with extraordinary powers to proceed to Canada and investigate the whole subject of colonial government. One may guess that the ruling clique were prepared to take possession of the new commissioner and prime him with facts favorable to their side but durham was not a man to be monopolized by any faction when he arrived in may of eighteen thirty eight he quickly gave proof that he would follow his own counsels and choose his own counsellors his first official declaration was practically an act of amnesty to the rebels eight only of the leading prisoners among them dr nelson being punished for banishment to bermuda the rest being simply expelled from canada this act was tantamount to a declaration that the rebels possessed some rights and had suffered real grievances and the government rings in both toronto and quebec took furious offence complaints against durham poured into the english colonial office complaints oddly enough that he had violated the spirit of the English Constitution by sentencing subjects of the Crown without trial. 
though everyone knew that in Canada's turbulent condition trial by jury was impossible. Durham's political foes in England took up the cry. In addition to political complaints were grudges against Durham for personal slight, and it must be confessed that the haughty Earl had ridden roughshod over all the petty prejudice and little dignities of the colonial magnates. The upshot was, Durham resigned in high dungeon and sailed for England in November of 1838. On his way home, he dictated to his secretary, Charles Buller, the famous report which is to Canada what the Magna Charta is to England or the Declaration of Independence to the United States. Without going into detail, it may be said that it recommended complete self-government for the colonies. As disorders had again broken out in Canada, the English government hastened to embody the main recommendations of Duren's report in the Union Act of 1840, which came into force a year later. By it, Upper and Lower Canada were united on a basis of equal representation each, though Quebec's population was 600,000 to Ontario's 500,000. The colonies were to have the entire management of their revenues and civil lists. The government was to consist of an upper chamber appointed by the crown for life, a representative assembly, and the governor with a cabinet of advisers responsible to the assembly. In all, more than 700 arrests had been made in Quebec province. Of these, all were released but some 130, and the state trials resulted in sentence of banishment against 50, death to 12. In modern days, it is almost impossible to realize the degree of fanatical hatred generated by this half-century of misgovernment, declared one of the governing clique's official newspapers in Montreal. Peace must be maintained, even if we make the country a solitude. French Canadians must be swept from the face of the earth. The empire must be respected, even at the cost of the entire French-Canadian people. With such sentiments openly uttered, one may surely say that the Constitutional Act of 1791 turned back the pendulum of Canada's progress fifty years, and it certainly took fifty more years to, to eradicate the bitterness generated by the era of misgovernment. With the Upper and Lower Canada's united in a federation of two provinces, it was a foregone conclusion that all parts of British North America must sooner or later come into the fold. It would be hard to say from whom the idea of a federation of all the provinces first sprang. Purely a theory, the idea may be traced back as early as 1791. The truth is, destiny providence, or whatever we like to call that great stream of concurrent events which carries men and nations out to the ocean highway of a larger life, forced British North America into the Confederation of 1867. 
In the first place, while the union worked well in theory, it was exceedingly difficult in practice. Ontario and Quebec had equal representation. One was Protestant, the other Catholic. One French, the other English. Deadlocks, or, to use the slang of the street, even tugs of war, were inevitable and continual. All Ontario had to do to thwart Quebec, or Quebec had to do to thwart Ontario, was stand together and keep the vote solid. Coalition ministries proved a failure. In the second place, Ontario was practically dependent on the customs duties collected at Quebec ports of entry for a provincial revenue. The goods might be billed for Ontario. Quebec collected the tax. Ontario was also dependent on Quebec for access to the sea, which province was to pay for the system of canals being developed and the deepening of the St. Lawrence. Then the Oregon Treaty of 1846 had actually brought a cloud of war on the horizon. In case of war, there was the question of defense. Then railways had become a very live question. Quebec wanted connection with New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. How was the cost of a railroad to be apportioned? Red River was agitating for freedom from fur trade monopoly. How were railways to be built to Red River? Ontario's population in twenty years jumped past the million mark. Was it fair that her million people should have only the same number of representatives as Quebec with her half million? Reformers of Ontario voiced by George Brown of the Globe called for rep by pop, representation by population. Civil war was raging in the United States threatening to tear the Union to tatters. Why? Because the balance of power had been left with the state's governments, and not enough authority centralized in the federal government. The lesson was not lost on struggling Canada. England's declaration of free trade brought the colonies face to face with the need of some united action to raise revenue by tariff. Then the Hudson's Bay Company's license of monopoly over the fur trade of the West was nearing expiration. Should the license be renewed for another twenty years, or should Canada take over Red River as a new province, which was the wish of the people both East and West? And if Canada did buy out the Hudson's Bay Company's vested rights, who was to pay down the cost? Lastly was John A. Macdonald the young lawyer who had pleaded the defense of the Patriot Trials at Kingston in 1838, now a leading politician of the United Canadas, weary of the hopeless deadlocks between Ontario and Quebec, with almost a sixth sense of divination in reading the signs of the times in the trend of events, John A. Macdonald saw that Canada's one hope of becoming a national power lay in union confederation the same thing was seen by other leaders of the day by all that grand old guard known as the fathers of confederation sent from the different provinces to the conference at quebec in october of eighteen sixty four there the outline of what is known as the british north america act was drafted 
in the main but the amplification of Durham's scheme, made broad enough to receive all the provinces whenever they might decide to come into confederation. The delegates then go back to be endorsed by their provinces. By some provinces the scheme is rejected. Newfoundland is not yet part of Canada, but by 1867 confederation is an accomplished fact. By 1871 the new dominion has bought out the rights of the Hudson's Bay Company in the west and Manitoba joins the eastern provinces. By 1885 a railway links British Columbia with Nova Scotia. By 1905 the great hunting field of the Saskatchewan prairies has been divided into two new provinces, Saskatchewan and Alberta, each larger than France. Such is barest outline of Canada's past. What of the future for this empire of the north? That future is now in the making. It lies in the hands of the men and women who are living today. In the past, Canada's makers dreamed greatly, and they dared greatly, and they took no heed of impossibles, and they spent without stint of blood and happiness for high aim. When Canada lost ground in the progress of the nations, as in the corrupt days of Bigot's rule during the French regime, or the equally corrupt days of the family compact after the conquest, it was because the altar fires of her ideals were allowed to burn low. It has been said that the past is but a rear light marking the back trail of the ship's passage. Say rather it is the searchlight on the ship's prow, pointing the way over the waters. Today Canada is the very vanguard of the nations. Her wheat fields fill the granaries of the world, and to her ample borders come the peoples of earth ends, bringing tribute not of incense and frankincense as of old, but of manhood and strength, of push and lift, of fire and hope and enthusiasm, and the daring that conquers all the difficulties of life, bringing too all the outworn vices of an old world all the vicious instincts of the powers that prey in the underworld. Canada's prosperity is literally overflowing from a cornucopia of superabundant plenty. Will her constitution, wrested from political and civil strife, will her moral stanima, bred from the heroism and a heroic past, stand the strain, the tremendous strain of the new conditions? Will she assimilate the strange new peoples, strange in thought and life and morals, coming to her borders? Will she eradicate their vices like the strong body of a healthy constitution throwing off disease? Or will she be poisoned by the toxins of vicious traits inherited from centuries of vicious living? Will she remake the men, regenerate the aliens, coming to her hearth-fire, or will they drag her down to their degeneracy? Above all, will she stand the strain, the tremendous strain of prosperity and the corruption that is attendant on prosperity? Queen Sab, let her answer who can, and the question is best answered by watching the criminal calendar. 
is the percentage of convictions as certain as relentless as under the old regime what manner crimes is growing up in the land and the question may be answered too by watching whether the press and platform and pulpit stand as everlasting and relentless for sharp demarcation between right and wrong for the sharp demarcation between truth plain truth and intentional mediocrity as under the regime of the old hard days when political life grows corrupt it is now cleansed or condoned let each canadian answer for himself if the altar fires of canada's ideals again burn low again she will lag in the progress of the world's great builders end of section 46 recording by linda marie nielsen vancouver bc end of canada the empire of the north by agnes c lot